It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 21 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, June the 25th. First, I'll be talking to Joe Asquith, CEO of Catalyst Education, the country's leading training provider for aged care, early childhood, etc., two of the country's most booming sectors where jobs are in demand and they desperately need quality workers, particularly in the face of the outcome of the Aged Care Royal Commission. And I'll be talking indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now, let's talk to Joe Asquith. Early childhood education, care and aged care seem to be growth areas in learning. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Can you explain that? Yes, certainly. Well, I think, um, I mean, just starting with aged care, uh, I mean, following the recommendations from the Royal Commission, uh, I mean, 140 plus recommendations. But what is really clear is that the, the sector is really crying out for a skilled workforce. So one of the criticisms of the aged care sector was there just simply wasn't the capacity in workforce planning to have enough people on the ground to look after the uh, either residents in aged care facilities or in home care. So what we're doing at Catalyst Education is we're involved in training that workforce so that they're ready to hit the ground running, if you like, either within an aged care facility or in the growing home care uh, space. So the recent budget has obviously reflected the government's commitment into that area for creating greater numbers of skilled workforce into the aged care sector and also the early childhood uh, care sector as well and disability services. Right, okay. So how how are you going about uh, training people for the aged care sector? Yeah, so um, we, we have three what we call registered training organisations. So Catalyst Education is the parent company and um, underpinning Catalyst Education, we have Selmar uh, Education, we have Practical Outcomes and we have the Royal College of Healthcare up in Queensland. So we deliver our training through our registered training organisations. So as I mentioned, about half of our learners are learners who are already in the workforce. So they might be in an early childcare centre or they might be in an aged care centre and they're wanting to upskill. And and that's absolutely critical so that they can have a career progression within those centres. They can earn 
more money because as you get better qualifications or, or um, in, increase your qualifications, you're subject to a, a, a higher pay grade. And then the other, I guess, the half of, of who we're training are people who might be unemployed, uh, they might be school leavers, they might be mature age students who are wanting to get into the sector to gain employment in, that, in those sectors. And that constitutes about half of our learners. And that's particularly where the government is looking to um, fund getting people from unemployment into those sectors that so much want a skilled workforce to go into their, their centres and home care and early child care centres. Are there any particular demographics of the kinds of people who would want to go into aged care? Yeah, look, that's what, um, there's demographics, but there's also the skills that people are crying out for. I mean, there's obviously the technical skills and the Department of Education put out their new training packages and they review them from time to time. And um, the early childhood uh, training packages are currently being reviewed and it's just been endorsed by the Department of Education. But what, what centres and what the um, communities that we serve in are really looking for are the adaptive skills. So that's the, you know, the care and compassion. It's the, those human-centred skills so that we put our clients at the centre of everything that we do. So, for example, in the aged care facilities uh, where we put training in, they're talking about uh, that, that every resident will have 200 minutes of one-on-one -on -one care per day and that's absolutely critical because it's you know it's all about human-centered education and it's putting that clientele at the center of everything we do so there's the technical skills that are absolutely critical everybody needs to come out with a, a suite of technical skills but we're really looking for people who are passionate about the sectors in which we deliver our programs that are um have care and compassion and also how we develop that through the course of our training package and that's what the sector is really crying out for is it are really those adaptive skills used to be called soft skills we call them adaptive skills um, which really span um, all sectors that we deliver training into that's interesting i mean 200 minutes a day that's three and a half hours so that's virtually half the day that someone has to spend with a resident in an aged care sector and yes. when you when you consider that they would have a whole lot of different residents to deal with that would take up their whole day well i think that that really highlights the 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 gap in the workforce that is currently in the uh, aged care sector is that you know we're nowhere near that 200 minutes a day of care now that care will be will include things like um personal care like showering you know, moving residents from place to place and, and, and those uh, practical skills. But it's also about that connection with the residents and, and people in home care, which is, you know, it's absolutely critical. Of course, uh, all, of the, all of this sort of work would be quite life-changing for the people doing it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, absolutely. We, um, I mean, a lot of our trainers, we have about 80 trainers at Catalyst Education across our registered training organisations. They all come from the sector. So they've all been, they might have been directors in aged care centres or early childcare centres. And the reason why they, um, the majority of them want to actually become one of our trainers is because that's where they can create the greatest social impact. If they train 200 learners in a year, then, and those learners have gone out and are now a workforce within the sectors and are having that impact in, in the, uh, in the communities in which we 
deliver our programs, I mean, that's a huge ripple effect uh, that we're able to have in, in what we're doing as an education organisation. So what about early childhood education? What work are you doing there? That's, uh, that's our, um, we're much bigger in the early childcare, um, ch childhood uh, care sector than we are in aged care. Aged care is still relatively quite small, although we're growing there. So Selma Institute is the, the largest early childhood care provider in Victoria. And we have about uh, three and a half thousand learners across Victoria, Queensland and New South, South Wales, but predominantly in, in, in Victoria. And we work with about 960 different organisations in that early childhood sector. So we're, we're really creating a difference and an influence in, in what we're doing in that, in that sector. For me, one of the amazing things is that we're working with two very vulnerable populations, the very youngest of our society and the very oldest of our society. And I think, you know, going back to those adaptive skills absolutely required a, a, across the, um, the sectors that we work in. So it's a really exciting space to be in. So many people are now looking for a career change because they've had their hours cut or they lost their jobs during COVID. And so they're looking for rewarding work in either early childhood education or aged care. Would that be right? Absolutely. I mean, COVID was obviously an interesting time for everybody. And it certainly didn't come without some challenges, Leon. You know, I can't say that we, you know, we, we, we swanned through the, the last 12 months. Uh, the biggest challenges for us were the inability for us to get our learners into the centres to do their practical component. The way we work, we, we have a block of theory and then we have a practical placement for our learners who are doing the distance education. And during that practical placement, they're obviously evidencing all of the theoretical knowledge they have. Now, with the inability to get into centres, that was delayed somewhat. So um, that, that was, I, I guess, our challenge. However, during the last 12 months, we've put on about 20 staff. It is growing. We've certainly picked up some learners that have come out of hospitality. Uh, and I think also, particularly in the aged care sector, um, Leon, with... People who have seen the impact of COVID on their own families, ageing relatives and friends and neighbours, and, and actually want to be part of the solution and help support particularly family members who want to stay at home for as long as possible. So not everybody who's doing our course are necessarily doing it for a, a vocation. They might also be doing it because they, they want to have the skills and the expertise to look after their own um, family members as they age. Very interesting space to work in. And, and I'm undertaking the course myself. I've got an aging mother and I, and I want to be able to be skilled in a way that supports her in her independent living for as long as she chooses to do that. Of course, uh, in view of the Aged Care Royal Commission, we're going to need major upskilling of aged care staff, minimum patient care ratios as well in care time. Absolutely. So I would say that would actually increase the number of jobs and associated skill requirements for those working in the sector, which means you guys are going to have your work completely cut out for the next few years. Yep. 
Yeah, look, totally. But I, but I think, I mean, the, the recent federal bu budget announced a further 33,800 aged care workers to be trained over the next two years. And that's part of the $500 million expansion of the government job trainer program. So it will certainly go some way to, you know, to assist with uh, those staff shortages. Uh, what we're really interested in, though, we're in here for the long haul. We want to develop and, and deliver really quality programs. And again, I, you know, I always go back to those adaptive skills. So it isn't just doing a, a, a quick course and getting out into the workplace. It's really looking at how do we create lifelong learners, uh, learners who go into those sectors and stay in those sectors and also have some career development as well. So, yeah, we, we're, we're absolutely intent to be part part of the solution and, and also partner com well, uh, some of the conversations we're having at the moment are looking at um, aged care and early childcare uh, facilities and how do we partner with them so that we can actually create the bespoke training packages that suit their needs uh, because everybody is slightly different they have a different clientele you know we're working with with different cons consortia of um, aged care facilities so that we can put, you know, their policies and procedures, embed them in our training package and our curriculum so that a learner that goes through our, our, um, our course might be a Cert 3, it might be a diploma, uh, actually learning the culture of that particular organisation where they're going into placement. That's really critical and we have the capacity to do that. So we can, we can really make very personalised training packages for, for our clients as in uh, the centres in which we work. Well, Joe, it'll be fascinating to watch and uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Thank, thank you so you. much. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Now, uh, Callum, um, Australia's unemployment rate uh, fell to 5.1%. Employment has increased by 115,200 people. Um, this is These results actually exceed expectations. What's your view about that? Well, it easily exceeds expectations. In fact, I'd go as far as to say this is probably the, the strongest labour force survey we've seen in a, in a good decade. Um, there was really no weak spots in the data at all. I mean, the headline was the unemployment rate declining to 5.1%. That's great, heading in the right direction. Employment jumping by 115,000. That's fantastic too. Almost all of those jobs were full-time. That's another great sign. And we also saw a decline in the underemployment rate and the underutilisation, seven and eight year lows. So it was pretty much fantastic data all round. What does this mean for the RBA? I mean, I, I noticed that the futures market are now saying 2022 there's going to be a rate hike. And uh, certainly the Fed has been talking about rate hikes in 2023. Yeah, this is the type of result that really will require a bit of a rethink from the Reserve Bank. Um, they've been pretty adamant that they didn't see rates rising until 2024 at the least. But the economic performance of Australia has greatly exceeded the RBA's expectations over the past six months, um, and it's continued to do so uh, recently since the Reserve Bank's last forecasts back in, in May. There is a, a reasonable chance now that rates could rise next year or 2023. Um, however, I think it's important to, to note that the Reserve Bank said that the process for raising rates is going to be data dependent. And by that, they mean that they actually need to see higher inflation before they pull the trigger. So the fact that uh, the unemployment rate is declining faster than expected is great news, but it's got to translate into higher inflation first before the Reserve Bank pulls the trigger. And what we don't know is at, at what rate 
for unemployment, does wage growth begin to take off? When wage growth begins to take off, that's when we see that higher persistent inflation. So we're not quite sure whether uh, wage growth will begin to pick up strongly when the unemployment rate gets below 5%, or below 4.5%, or even down to 4%. That's sort of the, the big uncertainty around policy right now. And indeed, in the US, it's had to fall to around 3% for it to pick up wages there. Yeah, that's right. Um, one of the experiences the US had after the global financial crisis was that it took a long time for to really pick up, and their unemployment rate got down below 4%. Um, before we really began to see any wage pressures develop um, across the United States. Now, Australia hasn't had an unemployment rate uh, below 5% in a, in a long time. So we haven't had that sort of really tight labour market um, that is likely to lead to higher wage growth. So it's a little bit uncertain for us at, at what point Australia will begin to see wage growth of maybe 3 or 3.5%, which is what we were accustomed to before the global financial crisis. Right, okay. Okay. Now, uh, this would mean perhaps that we're going to see perhaps skill shortages developing or becoming exacerbated in the months to come. Yeah, one of the consequences of a tight labour market is that skill shortages do begin to develop and they, they begin as sort of pockets in the economy. And we consistently see pockets of skill shortages in areas such as healthcare and tech. Um, but as the unemployment rate drops below 5%, we're going to begin to see skill shortages more broadly across the economy. And the hope is that as those skill shortages emerge, we'll begin to see some more wage pressures uh, develop, or at least that's how the, the theory says these things should, should work out. So that's going to be something that policymakers are going to be closely watching uh, over the remainder of this year, because there is a very real possibility that we could have an unemployment rate of below 5%, um, even possibly within the next few months. And possibly when those skill shortages happen and they translate into wages, that will have an impact on inflation as well. That's the way it's meant to work, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> right now, wage growth is very low. It's 1.4%, um, and it's not particularly strong in any industry. Um, but as these skill shortages um, emerge and exacerbated, we would expect wage growth to pick up across most industry groups, and that will lift the national figure. And if wage growth gets up to, say, 3%, uh, 3.5%, which we're a long way away from that right now, um, that would translate into inflation of between 2 and 3%, which is the Reserve Bank's inflation target. Um, and once they begin to see that, that is the trigger point for them. Well, wage growth of 3% would be extraordinary. I mean, we haven't seen that in years. It's been about eight years, um, and we haven't come close for, for most of that time. And so that's that's the real uncertainty that we have. We, we know the way things are meant to work. You get the unemployment rate below 5%, you trigger higher wage growth. But it's been so long since we had those conditions. It's quite possible that the relationship between unemployment and wage growth may have broken down or, or fundamentally changed. And so there is a possibility, and this is what we've seen overseas, that the unemployment rate may need to get much lower than it traditionally had to in order to create uh, wage growth of 3% or higher. So this is going to be um, a key for policymakers. This is something that they're, they're closely watching, um, but it remains something that is a little bit uncertain to everyone right now. Well, the, one of the big surprises, the numbers completely absorbed the impact of JobKeeper finishing. Yeah, this was a, a really good um, story. So there, there was obviously a lot of concern about what impact JobKeeper would have on employment. Um, there was a lot of numbers thrown about by various groups. Treasurer, I think, was estimating that employment would fall by 150,000 people. And, and thankfully, that hasn't occurred. 
we saw a decline of uh, 30,700 uh, in April when JobKeeper was immediately lifted. But, of course, employment has increased by 115,000 people in, in May. So, overall, the labour market is now much larger than it was when JobKeeper had lifted. And that indicates that we've successfully navigated or absorbed the impact of JobKeeper finishing. Um, and that means that the economy is in, in a pretty good state right now. We can be pretty optimistic about what's going to happen over the remainder of this year, um, particularly because we do see that hiring activity right now remains at such an incredibly strong level. And in terms of hours worked and uh, underemployment, what, what impact has that had? Well, hours worked were up 1.4% in the month of May, and that, that was a little bit stronger than the overall increase in employment. Employment was up by uh, 0.9%. So when hours growth exceeds employment growth, we see that average hours worked increases, which is a great sign. What the economy is doing right now is it's creating a lot of full-time jobs. Uh, full-time employment has accounted for around 78% of employment gains over the past eight months. And when you're creating a lot of full-time jobs, what you typically see is that underemployment goes down. People are more likely to be satisfied with the hours that they're working. And that's precisely what we've seen. The underemployment rate is down to 7.4% uh, from 7.8% in April. And that's the lowest level we've seen since January 2014. Um, it's still a fair bit above where we were before the global financial crisis, but it's definitely a step in, in the right direction. The economy is definitely creating the, the sort of jobs that we want to see created. Um, and that, that's a, a great sign for Australian workers and obviously a great sign for Australian businesses as well. That they're confident enough in their uh, financial and economic situation uh, that they can hire full-time. And, and full-time work has actually increased quite substantially as opposed to part-time work. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The recovery has had two stages. Um, initially in the recovery for the first few months, beginning from uh, June last year, it was mostly a part-time driven recovery. Most of the jobs being uh, created um, once the lockdowns were lifted were part-time. That has definitely shifted more towards full-time job creation over the past eight months. Um, as I said, about 78% of employment gains over that period have been full-time jobs. And we've created a lot of jobs over that, that um, period. I mean, in 2020 alone, employment has increased by 256,000, uh, with you know, a large share of those jobs being full-time. Um, so the, the economy is doing really quite well at the moment, you know, and we're, we're seeing the decline in underemployment, which indicates that people are getting the hours they want as well. And that's, that's a really important step in the Australian recovery. And, uh, and all of this has been done with the borders are being shut, so one, one could imagine what will happen once the borders do open. Yeah, this is an interesting dynamic. So I definitely think that the borders being shut has pushed the unemployment rate lower than it otherwise would have been, largely because population growth is now so low compared to where it was before the pandemic. But there is a little bit of a concern um, longer term in that if the, the borders don't open up, the Australian economy is going to be much smaller than it otherwise. Um, we do rely on overseas migration to address skill shortages. So there, there is a chance that it's going to be exacerbated by a lack of skilled migration. So this is going to be a really interesting one to, to watch for um, because there is a lot of uncertainty around when borders will open. It obviously relies... Um, extensively on the, the vaccine rollout. But in an ideal situation, we do want those borders to, to open um, sooner rather than later um, because there is those issues around skill shortages um, that many businesses will face. And given how quickly the unemployment rate is declining, um, it is likely that those skill shortages will be exacerbated considerably in the months to come.
And looking ahead, you would you would expect unemployment to keep falling further into the uh, mid fours. Yeah, that's right. Um, what we're seeing with regards to job ads right now is that hiring activity remains incredibly high. Um, it's well above where it was before the pandemic. Uh, the Australian economy is creating a, a lot of new opportunities. And when job postings are high, it typically means that employment growth is going to be strong. And when employment growth is strong, the unemployment rate declines. So there is a very, I'd be very confident in saying that the unemployment rate will continue to decline over the next three to six months based on what we are seeing with job ads right now. Um, this is a, a very good period for the job seekers. Um, not just those who are unemployed and looking to get back into the job market, but also those who currently have a job but maybe are looking for a new opportunity. Well, Callum, it's going to be fascinating to watch, and thank you very much for your time. And thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Black Swan author Nassim Taleb has doubled down on his criticism against Bitcoin, this time saying the cryptocurrency is worth exactly zero and that there is no evidence that blockchain is a useful technology. In a recent six-page draft paper titled Bitcoin Currency is in Bubbles, Mr Taleb laid out four arguments against the cryptocurrency, which he then published on his website and promoted to his 743,000 Twitter followers. First, the author said that in spite of the hype, Bitcoin failed to satisfy the notion of currency without government. In fact, he said Bitcoin proved to be not even a currency at all. Mr Taleb's second criticism is that Bitcoin can neither be a short or nor long-term store of value. He used the famous juxtaposition of gold versus Bitcoin, which he said was a poor comparison to illustrate his point. Final two points were that Bitcoin is not a reliable inflation hedge, contrary to some analysts' views, and is not a safe haven for investments, whether meant to protect against government tyranny or other catastrophes. And Australia is taking its trade fight with China up a notch. The country this weekend said it is lodging a complaint with the World Trade Organisation over Beijing's decision to slap massive duties on Australian wine. While Australia's trade and agricultural ministers said the country remains open to engaging directly with China to resolve this issue, they added in a Saturday statement that the government would continue to vigorously defend the interests of Australian winemakers. It's not really clear that the complaint will get Australia what it wants. Such disputes can take months to resolve, and prior WTO rulings have often been difficult, if not impossible, to enforce. And the resurrection of Barnaby Joyce as Deputy Prime Minister and his opposition to Australia signing on to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 risks mining and farming exports being hit by European carbon tariffs, international climate change experts warned. As well as expressing scepticism about climate change, the return national leaders has been a repeated critic of China and its foreign investment in local agriculture. Mr Joyce has been a strong backer of coal, including a potential government-financed coal-fired power station in central Queensland, advocated by one of his supporters, Senator Matt Canavan. Major business groups, including the National Farmers Federation and Business Council of Australia, support Australia's signing on to the net zero 2050 emissions target at the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Scotland in November. Under the European Climate Change Proposal, Exporters in countries that fail to adequately price carbon would face a levy on their emission-intensive goods shipped to the EU, equal to the carbon price imposed on EU producers. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been inching towards getting the Liberal Nationals Coalition Party room to agree to a net-zero position ahead of the November conference. Asked about his threat as a backbench to cross the floor of Parliament to vote against a net-zero 2050 target, Mr Joyce said he would seek the best deal for regional, local jobs and industry, as opposed to a Danish one or a German one. Australian National University Professor and and a Vice Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Mark Howden, said if Australia does not commit to net zero emissions, exports could be penalised.
And resources industry giants have started lobbying the Morrison government for a special visa that will allow them to bring tens of thousands of overseas workers into Western Australia, as happened during the state's last mining boom. The Chamber of Minerals and Energy, WA, whose members include Rio Tinto, BHP, Fortescue Metals Group, Chevron and Woodside Petroleum, has been in Canberra pushing for the special visa in anticipation of international border restrictions remaining in place beyond 2021. The resources sector in WA estimates it will need 40,000 new workers by mid-2023 and could be left 33,000 short without access to a vast overseas skills and labour pool. Unions and the resources sector are on a collision course over the plan to look overseas for workers for high-paying jobs in mining, oil and gas. The powerful CFMEU said the resources industry was just being lazy in wanting to fly in overseas workers instead of employing or training Australians. And more than 3,000 Australian adults could soon be millionaires, according to a new report by Credit Suisse, while Australian adults with a net wealth of $238,000 are the richest in the world. Favourable conditions in global markets helped 392,000 Australians join the ranks of Australia's 1.8 million strong cohort of US dollar millionaires last year, according to Credit Suisse, representing about 1 in 10 adults. Rock-bottom interest rates are expected to pave the way for an asset boom price boom that is expected to cause a dramatic increase in household wealth over the next five years. Credit Suisse Australia Head of Private Banking Michael Maher expects the number of US dollar millionaires in Australia to increase dramatically by 70% over the next five years to 3.1 million, based on trends identified in the bank's annual Global Wealth Report. An Australian power giant Origin Energy has called for governments to provide incentives for electric car smart chargers in garages to prevent motorists plugging in en masse during the peak evening demand period from overloading the grid. As Victoria and New South Wales embark on ambitious plans to accelerate electric vehicle uptake, an Australian first trial conducted by Origin has found that when EVs are adopted, more widely charging times will need to be managed to minimise risks of blackouts and price spikes. The trial has so far installed smart changes for 70 residential electric vehicle owners and 33 businesses and obtained their baseline charging data. Smart chargers coordinate recharging times with periods of surplus solar power supply, such as the middle of the day, and avoid adding strain to peak demand periods on the grid from 5 to 6 p.m. onwards. Sho Lee, Origin's head of e-mobility, said more than 60% of participants prior to the trial had been plugging their car batteries into standard sockets in their garages, usually during the evenings. With smart charging devices, most charging still occurred in the evening, but the consumption could be spaced out to ease the load on the grid, she said. And major telco companies are slapping Australians with higher fees and plans, with some providers pushing the price up by nearly $40 a month. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission has unveiled new research indicating Telstra, Vodafone and Optus have all inflated the cost of plans since July last year. All three providers make up the bulk of Australia's retail mobile phone market. ACCC Chair Rod Sims said the price hike showed providers held no concern of losing customers to rivals due to the lack of competition within the market. In the past 12 months, Telstra has increased its postpaid phone plan between $5 and $15 a month, while prepaid services offered by the telco have jumped by up to 50%. All Optus postpaid plans over the period have been increased by $6, and plans offered by Vodafone have gone up between $5 and $40 a month. Vodafone's price jump comes after its merger with TPG that was originally opposed by the ACCC over fears that would tighten the telecommunications market and lead to poorer outcomes for customers in the form of higher fees. 
and famous sporting moments featuring football stars Eddie Betts and John Aloisi will spearhead the release of what are believed to be among the first Australian non-fungible tokens to be launched locally. Aloisi's famous penalty for the Socceroos to beat Rio Gras in 2005 and qualify for the World Cup the following year will feature, along with AFL star Betts, a spectacular goal scorer of Carlton and, and Adelaide Crows in the Australian section of a, of a marketplace led by global blockchain and cryptocurrency infrastructure provider Binance. NFTs, such as digital art and collectibles, surged in popularity earlier this year. The items often are traded using cryptocurrency. Verification via blockchain makes digital goods unique and provides proof of authenticity, which makes them attractive to buyers. Among the biggest deals were an NFT by digital artist Beeple, which earlier this year sold at Christie's auction for US $69 million, that's $92 million Aussie, and Twitter boss Jack Dorsey has sold his first tweet for more than US $2.9 million. Meanwhile, World Wide Web creator Tim Berners-Lee is selling the original code used to make the internet as an NFT. Binance's 100 Creators campaign will be launched via auction this week, including eight Australians across sport, photography, art and other unique content. And after extracting $2 billion in fines from Australia's big banks for breaching anti-money laundering laws, financial intelligence regulator describes the banks as valuable partners in the fight against financial crimes as it shifts the heat onto casinos. Austrac is looking to put its combative history with the banks behind it and leverage the improved relationship. The regulator and the financial sector came together to provide support to a high-profile sting run by the Australian Federal Police and the FBI, which was revealed two weeks ago. CEO Nicole Rowe said banks played an important role as service providers to other Austrac-regulated entities and were able to provide insight into other sectors and add value to its operations. The nimble but regulator is now shifting its attention from the banks to the embattled casino sector. Two weeks ago, Australia's Peak Financial Intelligence Unit was revealed to be conducting simultaneous enforcement investigations of Crown Casino, the Star Entertainment Group and Sky City Entertainment. The probes were launched following a compliance exercise codenamed Operation Slaylong that found the anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism programs of Australian casinos and their identification and treatment of political exposed persons were not up to scratch. Ms Rose said the termination of high-roller gambling jackets would reduce the risk casinos were being exploited by money launderers, but this was no silver bullet because there was a lack of visibility across the casino industry's cash operation. And Tritium, the Australian electric vehicle fast charging station company, which is the world's second largest, expects a flood of buyers from Victoria and Queensland to head to New South Wales to purchase electric vehicles after a policy shake-up by the New South Wales government. Tritium Chief Executive Jane Hunter said on Sunday the New South Wales overhaul would deliver a substantial stimulus to electric vehicle uptake and put pressure on other states. She said the price of electric vehicles was the biggest barrier to motorists, not the range of vehicles available. $151 million in charging infrastructure in metropolitan regional areas under the plans have been included in the New South Wales state budget on June the 22nd. But electric vehicle owners will pay a road user charge of 2.5 cents a kilometre by 2027, or once electric vehicles make up 30% of new car sales, depending on which milestone is reached first. And challenger lender Judo Bank has completed a quick-fire $124 million equity raising to help it pursue aggressive growth in the fiercely contested small business finance market as it continues to mull a potential float. The latest raising means Judo now has an implied valuation of $1.9 billion, and co-founder David Hornery said it was well-placed to deal with the growing competition from the big four banks in its core market. Ahead of a mooted ASX float, Judo has raised another $175 million of capital in its fifth run to funding round, including an inaugural issuance of Tier 2 debt at a post-money valuation of $1.9 billion. Its pipeline of lending opportunities has swollen to $2.5 billion as more companies consider alternatives for the big four. Judo's loan book is more than $3.3 billion, which has more than doubled since the start of the pandemic. 
over the year to March, its $1.4 billion of new business loans was, was only beaten by the Commonwealth Bank and Macquarie. And Voca's shareholders have overwhelmingly voted in favour of selling the telco to Macquarie Infrastructure and Real Assets Management, or MIRA, and Aware Super for $3.5 billion, a chairman, Bob Mansfield, said. In a 15-minute investor meeting on Tuesday, Mansfield said that more than 99% of proxy votes cast on the deal were in favour. This represented more than 85% of shareholders, leaving little to no chance that any outstanding votes may torpedo the acquisition. And Borrell's? U.S. $2.15 billion, that's $2.9 billion Aussie, sale of its U.S. building products business has ratcheted up tensions with its biggest shareholders after Kerry Stokes 7 Group said the unit had been sold for a loss and rushed through amid its takeover. The division was sold to Houston-based manufacturer Westlake Chemical Corporation on Monday after several bids were reviewed over the weekend, with the Borrell noting the price outstripped a U.S. $1.8 billion to U.S. $2 billion valuation range detailed in an independent expert's report by Grant Samuel. But Seven, which, which launched a lowball $6.50 a share bid for Borel on May the 10th, said it was disappointed with the sale. It claimed the construction materials giant should have received a bigger payday given strong US trading conditions. And one in five Australians have fibbed to the bank when applying for a loan in order to avoid being knocked back by the lender, raising concerns about the return of liar loans in a surging housing market. Slightly more than 40% of liars when applying for home loans involved understating living costs, says a new survey by Experian, the world's largest consumer credit reporting agency. This month's survey of 1,000 Australians also found that almost a third of consumers who lied understated their living costs when applying for a loan. That's 28% of fibs, while 21% of untruths involved overestimating income. Almost one in five lies involved hiding a pregnancy, while a quarter of applicants who misled the banks did so by withholding information about an upcoming change of job. The survey also indicated that popular buy-now-pay-later services and credit card applications were highly vulnerable to inaccurate information. And Commonwealth Bank agreed to sell its Australian general insurance business to the Holland Group in a complex deal that could be worth $1 billion as it continues to simplify the bank and exit capital-intensive non-core businesses. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Scott Huntsman, founder and CEO of Allcast PPE Supplies, one of the country's largest PPE suppliers. He says that 80% of the masks available are not registered with the TGA and therefore are not identified as being able to stop the transmission of COVID. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.